Hello, and welcome to Horror Origins. My name is Matthew Tanzik, and over the course of this podcast, we're going to be delving into horror firsts, as always. We're going to be dissecting their genesis and learning a bit more about the history of the pop culture horror world that has sprung up around us. This is episode 14, where we're going to be taking a look at the first story to bring the killer ape into the nightmares of readers. We'll be trying to figure out why the killer ape hasn't been added to the pantheon of other classic monsters, and we're going to do a little bit of myth-busting as we try to tackle the the text. Because, let's face it, apes, you know, they're not... They can be scary, but for the most part, they're not uh, monsters that some of these uh, old stories make them out to be. Now, the author of this uh, (laughs) little-known story is uh, none other than Edgar Allan Poe, you know, if you've never heard of him before, uh, my, I don't blame you. I'm kidding. Uh, everyone's heard of Edgar Allan Poe. And the story, of course, is the murders in the Rue Morgue. So let's break things down so we know what we're getting ourselves into. First, we're going to be uh, taking a look at the author who created the idea. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at the climate that the story was born into. Uh, in this case, it would be the 1840s. We're going to be taking a look at the story that introduced it, and then finally talk a little bit about the legacy that it's had since its inception. Today, I'm drinking Sierra Rose Hard Cider, pineapple flavor. Uh, it's uh, the middle of the afternoon. It's a beautiful day. This is, is what I'm at. <laughs> so just to let you know where, where I'm at with this, this whole thing. Um, it's going to be more of a laid-back uh, recording, I think. So, ready, set, let's go. The author was the one and the only Edgar Allan Poe, uh, an American born in ni- uh, 1809, and he lived um, through until somewhat uh, his mysterious death in 1849. So he, he lived about 40 years old. He lived about 40 years. Gosh, how much have I been drinking? Famous for his tales of the macabre and mystery, he was read, wild- read wildly, widely, and he was regarded as a central figure of the, ro- of the Romantic movement in the United States. He was even reported to be one of the first American writers that earned a living on his writing alone, which is mind-boggling that he was one of the first. I would have thought that there would have been plenty of people who could have done that at the time, but I guess, you know, he's really got in on the ground floor with sort of American writers doing this sort of thing. All right, so for me, uh, I think a lot of people... Me and for a lot of people, Poe holds a special place because of his tales of the macabre. And they really just sort of jumped out at me from library shelves when I was a kid. And I remember reading probably some of my first horror stories may have been Poe. Which I don't know was the best choice. A lot of his stuff is very dense. It's not really easy for a young reader to tackle. But, you know, be that as it may, uh, I thought his books were cool. There was just sort of a mystique about his, his stories and his poetry. And so it really, he was the first author to really get his foot in the door with my imagination and this whole thing. So I have a, I have a feeling that's the same story for a lot of people. 
Uh, feel free to comment if you're a lover of Poe, and Poe was sort of the gateway author to a lot of other horror stuff to follow. This story was born into the 1840s. And, you know, it, it sent the central uh, thing that people mostly remember about this story, for greater or for worse, is the ape that is sort of the central fascinating figure of the piece. Uh, apes have always been uh, mysterious creatures, especially at that time. Um, they're so close to being human. Um, in the 1600s, they were more akin to folklore than actual accounts of credible animals, which is really hard for me to put myself in the minds of someone who's only heard of this beast-like man. You know what I mean? It, it probably didn't even seem like a, an animal at the time. Um, you know, and I imagine people thought of apes in the same way they thought of satyrs and fairies for that reason. In the 1700s, things were becoming a bit more concrete. Apes were captured and shipped around the Western world. Their similarities are undeniable, um, but their, you know, the mannerisms are clearly still animalistic. And a rift began to form about the closeness that they seem to have with human beings, with homo sapiens, right? A science-impeding, Bible-thumping nitwit named George Louis Le Cirque de Buffon stood up on his soapbox and voiced the opinion that apes were mere matter, that man had a soul, and each animal was created by God separately with humans at the top of this animal pyramid, right? This is one of those things where people couldn't cope, I think, with the closeness that apes were to human beings, and so they had to really double down on a contrived difference between animals and people. Um, and that was really the debate back then, until we get to the 1800s, where our story uh, sort of takes place smack dab in the middle of the 1800s. Um, Darwin has returned from his famous ship aboard the Beagle, but his famous work uh, of course, The Origin of Species isn't published until 1859, so that's not going to happen for about another decade um, or two decades. And so I have to imagine that the thought of apes sharing a common ancestor was not really in the minds of the general public, but was in the minds of people with this, um, who, who sort of were invested in and interested in learning about these animals. One could mimic, um, these animals could mimic us to a great degree, um, greater than any other, perhaps, and one that could seemingly shift between moments of childlike innocence and states of complete and total animalism. And so they were fascinating things to behold. Uh, another interesting caveat is that um, the police force, which plays pretty prominently in the story because it's one of the first stories that is a detective story, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on, um, Police forces were not really a thing yet. Most cities had watchmen that patrolled around at night looking for crime and robbery. Uh, Boston, for example, didn't have a police force until a decade after this was written, uh, which is crazy. So when we, when we introduce the character of Dupin, who is um, the main character of the story, the, the investigator of the piece, he's of the old French blood and of this classical upper crust uh, elitist kind of um, lineage, and he's putting a logical and rational mind against the bumbling police force 
that is just sort of being developed. And we can start to see how this story works on many levels. It works on this greater scientific understanding of the natural world, i.e. the ape. It also works on the societal changes of law and order with the development of police forces and the way of using logic to solve problems and questions and crimes. So this story, I think, is really a provocative one on a number of levels right out the gate. And, and, and it was really one of the ones that solidified Poe and Poe's greatness, I think. Um, so let's dive into it, and we will undoubtedly cover a bit more of the climate as we go through the story, as these sort of things pop up. I'm just going to do a blow-by-blow of the story in very, excuse me, broad strokes. So there will be spoilers, but I would encourage you to read the story for yourself and don't think of this as like cliff notes for the story because I am not going to do it justice, I'll tell you that right now. Uh, Okay, so it's, it's... This story is born out of American Gothic fiction. We have a very Gothic setup where we have a uh, rich pair of women who are murdered. They have just withdrawn a large amount of money. Um, It it sort of has this classic setup. But uh, then we shift into this new sort of story, which is the investigative uh, detective story um, and sets up the archetype for that. I mean, this, this really, if this were a detective podcast, right, where we talk about the origins of detective stories, this would have been smack dab number one. But um, since we're sort of looking at it for the sort of murderous ape quality, we'll just sort of have to acknowledge that and and pass on by it. Um, Knowledge without evidence is really the theme of the piece and uh, ties into the quote by Thomas Brown at the beginning of the piece, where we're going to see logic in its pure abstract form, or at least as it is presented to us by Poe, um, used as its as its own sort of exercise to come to a concrete conclusion. The narrator of the story is friends with Dupont, uh, who we, who met when they were both searching for rare books. We have this sort of very weird fiction beginning where they're both antiquarians, they're both these bibliophiles, and they sort of bump in together, and we have this classic pairing up and living together of two. Uh, like-minded men, um, very much like Watson and Holmes, very much like a variety of characters in Lovecraft stories. It's sort of this plutonic duo uh, that we have here. We see that uh, Dupont uh, is not a rich man, but enjoys the trappings of a very rich life. The home that they eventually move into is one that is while run down in a very wealthy part of town, they present themselves as very intellectual and elitist. Despite the fact that they may be a little rough around the edges, they don't really bring home that much dough, and so on and so forth. The narrator uh, offers Dupont a place to stay. Um, like I said, it's this crappy, decadent little mansion. It's potentially haunted, which I think is also another indicator that this is born out of like the Gothic tradition or at least that's the way Poe is setting up, that it's going to be this gothic story, and then it it turns out not to be, which makes it all the more fascinating. Uh, The narrator has kept the house secret from his former associates and his business, and it's his plan to stay in Paris uh, until 
he finds the items that he's seeking or something. The narrator's business and his items that he's looking for in Paris is really never explained. Why he's there, it's just sort of set aside that it is just this contrivance to put him here to be part of the story. If there's more to that that I'm missing, feel free to, to comment or let me know. I'd really like to know that, but I've read a couple of critical or critiques of this, um, essays of this, and, and no one has seemed to ever mention what might be going on with the narrator's business. If that's uh, to, in somehow referencing to something, I don't see it. Anyway, during an evening walk, uh, Dupont puts his analytical skills on show and seems to show seems to know what the narrator is thinking, almost like he can read his mind. And it's a ridiculous chain of logic that he uses. He explains it to the narrator, what, how he's come to see what's in his head, really. And unlike Sherlock Holmes um, or Sherlock Holmes type detectives, Dupin is like has this whirlwind of crazy logic that in my mind makes leaps that are completely impossible to make. But nevertheless, he is correct and the narrator is astounded. The point of this opening scene is to show the kind of mind that Dupont has. Um, it's incredibly powerful. It's really just interested in the intellectual pursuits of everything. It is uh, this incredible, perhaps diseased intelligence. And it really is the blueprint for a lot of great detective characters that come after this, where the intellectual pursuit is perhaps given greater priority in these characters' minds than morality does. You certainly can see that with Sherlock Holmes. You can certainly see that with a lot of others. So, you know, it's born right out the gate with this character, too. So, sometime later, uh, a murder occurs nearby to the narrator and Dupont's home. Uh, it's a thing, um, it's a big thing in the story. Poe basically reprints the newspaper article into the story for, like, ten pages. It's it's kind of crazy to have that much of a uh, embedded evidence in the story. It, I don't know that it really adds a lot to have 10 pages worth of it in the story, but it, maybe it adds a bit of verisimilitude or um, make, makes you sort of see it as the characters would have been presented with it. Um, it's a bit jarring as a modern reader, um, but nevertheless, uh, it's kind of interesting. There's a uh, a pretty brutal um, um, set of murders. The, the, the narrator and Dupont sort of investigate it. Uh, they get uh, involved with the case. They find that one of the two women that were murdered, um, the daughter, was stuffed up the chimney chute. That would have been way too small for, let's, let's say, I think it's, a, it's quoted as an adult cat, couldn't fit up there. So that's a pretty so brutal strength. Um, have a body shoved up a, a narrow passage like that. The mother, uh, the other woman who was killed, um, is discovered on a small in a small paved yard, severely mutilated, practically decapitated. Two male voices are reported to have been heard on the night of the murder, uh, though the two um, women that lived in the house lived there alone. So no one can really make a guess at who these two male voices may have been. Yeah, super gothic elements. One of the dead women is perhaps a fortune teller. They're both unmarried. There's a large amount of money in the home. 
all of those elements are sort of coming together here, uh, and this is just when the change happens. Uh, DuPont criticizes the police and the, the levels that they see something as profound when really it's merely complex. He claims that all they do is guesswork and intuition, and they never really employ any kind of analytical, logical method to their investigation. And, you know, like I said, police forces are relatively new, so the the criticism that DuPont has for the police force really, I think, could be taken as a criticism of police forces in general at the time, and whether or not that is you know, a merited critique, I don't, I, I can't really say, but I think it's kind of an interesting one uh, that you really only would get this at this point in history. Anyway, the narrator and DuPont get permission to investigate the case. DuPont scrutinizes everything, despite our narrator not being able to see more than what was really reported in that newspaper article that was reprinted in the story. Once DuPont and the narrator return home, DuPont tells the narrator that he has solved it and then gives the narrator a gun and tells him that he may need to use it because uh, they're waiting for someone to arrive at the apartment. It's kind of like this weird, you know, time bomb kind of setup where someone's coming, DuPont's going to now explain what he has deduced of what happened, all the while we're all, as the reader and as as the narrator, we're knowing that someone... uh, who you may need to arm yourself against is coming to the apartment. And it's kind of bewildering that this is the way the story unfolds. Um, but it really is a pretty good use of, of, a, of what would be sort of a very blasé explanation of things, and it cranks up the tension a bit. Um, we learn that the person on the way to the house is the culprit, and uh, DuPont outlines three things that he's figured out. He's figured out who's spoken the four in voice and who the second male voice was, um, how they came and went from the house, and uh, he sort of solved the brutality of the murder. He concludes that the murderer is less than human and possesses a great amount of physical strength and agility. The smoking gun here is that DuPont has discovered a non-human hair found on one of the bodies, and that the hand marks on the neck of one of the two women is not human. So DuPont drops the bombshell that we all sort of uh, know is coming, in that is the culprit must have been an orangutan, which is crazy. DuPont possesses, like so many like impossibly perfect detectives that, that have come since him, he possesses a knowledge of things, like an encyclopedic knowledge of evidence and classification of things that no one could really ever know. He he knows not not only that the hair was an orangutan hair, but that it was a particular type of orangutan known from this particular area, right? He knows that the 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 sounds of the second male voice must have been, you know, the the guttural sounds of this type of animal. I mean it's it's just it strains believability when you stop and think about how anyone could know that much, but it's used so frequently as a trope in these kinds of stories that I think that we, at first blush anyway, kind of give it a pass. I, I want to point out here that orangutans are very unlike the animal that Poe inserts into the story here, or at least that DuPont is telling us committed the crimes. There's a a fictionalized description of the animals 
in the story, depicting them as really more brutish and violent um, than what really these sort of sweet animals are. I think that orangutans at this point were unknown enough for someone like Poe to create them and turn them into the needed monster, the antagonist of the situation. To a modern reader, the fact that these crimes are committed by an orangutan is almost laughable. It, these, these animals are not, not the way they're described. I almost feel like if Poe had invented an animal, a, another type of ape perhaps, or a variant of an orangutan that doesn't actually exist, and then asserted that it had all these violent tendencies and qualities, it would be easier on the modern reader. Maybe it's just because I'm I'm an animal lover, but the fact that he's sort of pointing the finger at and has created the antagonist as this type of animal is just kind of uncomfortable to me. Anyway, the the sailor arrives at the mansion. The sailor is the culprit that Dupont has figured out. He he claims that the sailor must have have this, this sort of Bornean, I think it's from Borneo, orangutan, and kept it as a pet and it must have been he who was the other voice in the home. Um, all of this comes out of his whirlwind of crazy leaps and jumps in logic that he explains. The sailor is absolutely flabbergasted that they know what has happened so completely, and and so he comes clean and admits everything to the two our two protagonists. We learn that yes, he is indeed uh, is the sailor who had the creature. That the creature was attempting to mimic shaving and had escaped from his cage and was trying to act like a human being. The the sailor scared it off in kind of an abrupt way. And in his attempt to recapture it, he sort of had invaded these two women's home where the orangutan had climbed up and entered. And the brutal uh, scene transpired. Um, The ape tries to shave the woman It gets enraged that it can't really pass as human. It can't really go beyond what it is um, mentally. And it it just flips out and goes ape (laughs) uh, and kills the two women. Um, There's a small epilogue then where Dupont explains that he is satisfied that he bested the head of the police, that he solved the crime and proved the value of his logical evidence, in quotes, evidence-based method. You know, that's sort of the end of the story. We learn that the, the sailor who, uh, who owned the orangutan sold the ape back to the zoo, that he made a lot of money out of the transaction, that there is no real repercussions for these two killed women, and maybe le- legally this is a murky place where when crime is not committed by a person but rather something else that acts independently from the owner, in this case the sailor, how much responsibility is on them for his essentially his pet's doings. I would think they'd be quite clear that he should be on the hook for the two women's death, even if it's not intentional. But in the story, that doesn't seem to be the case. He makes a load of money selling the orangutan to the zoo and, you know, bugs out back to his ship and off he goes. 
yeah, I, I felt like there was a real lack of justice at the end of the story. I remember reading the story many, many years ago and kind of taking everything at face value. The police are bumbling. Okay, yes. DuPont knows everything. Okay, yes. The orangutan did it. The murder has been solved. Yay for the good guys, and, and we're done. Um, but on, a, on coming back to it and reading it a little more critically, I have problems with things that I, I didn't have problems with before. The, the, not just the bumbling police, but how DuPont knows things, the motive of the ape to get angry and behave brutally, and then the, the lack of justice at the end of the story is just completely lacking. Um, yeah, it struck me as a very different toned story this time around on this reading. But uh, anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's a fantastic story. It is the first detective story, like I said. The first story also that is told through the eyes of the sidekick. It's a situation that we've come to recognize as really sort of a John Watson and Sherlock Holmes kind of situation, uh, you know, setup. But this story did it first. It's you know so much like Sherlock Holmes that it, it it's it's really kind of amusing. We also get the same thing later on with uh, let's see Agatha Christie's Poirot uh, and and many others. It's not only a a horror like a horror origin story, but a detect origin story and a buddy cop origin story. It's really pretty pioneering. Um, but let's take a look at the reception this, this story has had. The Murders in the Room Morgue were published in Graham's Magazine, a fairly interesting and well-paying magazine for its time. Um, in 1840, the magazine was formed after its namesake, George Rex Graham, purchased two other magazines, Burton's Gentleman's Magazine and Atkinson's Casket, and combined their reader base into one newly formed magazine. And he wanted his magazine to be the classy, upper-crust magazine that would appeal to the refined and cultured and the wealthy. And to this end, um, he, he would feature fashion, art, fiction, poetry, and he would pay an exorbitant $5 a page for his contributors. Um, most other magazines at the time were only paying a dollar per page. So if you could get into grams, you were raking in the dough. So he really had his pick of the top writers and uh, art creators of the time. And his plan pretty much worked. Uh, he had contributors to the magazine that included William Cullen, Cullen Bryant, Nathaniel Hawthorne, James Lowell, Christopher um, Pierce Cranch, Fitzgreen Halleck. I mean, he had all sorts of big name writers at the time put, pitching stuff to his magazine. So kudos to Graham. Uh, it sounds like he, what he did really worked. Um, and I, would, I should note here that um, Edgar Allan Poe became the editor of this magazine in, in 1841, the same year that this tale made it into its pages. And I'm not implying that he got special treatment, but it sure seems kind of suspicious. He certainly had more weight of, about what, what went into the magazine as an editor probably than most. I'm surprised that he didn't originally submit this under a pen name to not seem kind of self-serving, that he's going to pay himself and get his own work into this kind of well-paying magazine. But apparently there, I, I couldn't find any reason that this might have been a scandal or anything at the time. So 
you know, I take that take that with a grain of salt, I suppose. Uh, the concept of the story is healthy and strong and, and still going on to this day. But the concept of the killer ape, not so much. So it's, it, the, the, the origin of the detective part, absolutely, full speed ahead. Movies like Congo, Planet of the Apes, uh, that franchise, perhaps the Kong movies, uh, of which one came out, I think, just last year, is still continuing the tradition, but... Rather than treating a gorilla or an orangutan as some sort of werewolf-type malevolent monster, they're often a bit more, I don't know, nuanced. Gone are the days that the ape is seen as a mysterious or mythological creature. Our understanding of the natural world has all but cleared away the fog about apes and gorillas, the great apes. Um, So oftentimes if you have a story where the ape is the killer it seems to fall flat. So with new tellings of this kind of thing, apes are usually the sympathetic figure. It's a creature so close to being us that through the machinations of a story, we usually end up seeing ourselves in it. You know, they're inherently interesting and entertaining because of that fact. And so I guess maybe in this way, the concept continues. But I would argue that really as a as a monster, as a as a horror element, maybe the the, the concept is as as you know, it's made its course. We're not going to be afraid of orangutans anymore. Or at least the general public is not, unless you go through great lengths to sort of make it into something foreign and alien again, which I would argue is kind of stepping away from the ape at that point. So, um, at least that's that's what I think anyway. Let's uh, let's t- tip our glass and 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 raise a, a can of hard cider uh, to the killer ape and its origins. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast and learning about the strange works of horror that have brought us to where we are today, I implore you take a moment to rate or review the show. It's really the the single best thing you could do. I'm not asking for any money; just a little bit of a you know a shout out if you think it's worthwhile. And if you appreciate podcasts that are advertisement-free and you want to say thanks or if you want to make a recommendation for the show or if you want to catch me on something or talk about something that I omitted or overlooked or misquoted, uh, you can email me at author at matthewtanzik.com. I will absolutely discuss that on my next episode. Or uh, you can click on the contact button on matthewtanzik.com. I'll have links for those things in the show notes. Uh, Please do. I'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you want to stay up to speed on this or any of my other creative projects, I am on Twitter at Tans444, that's T-A-N-Z 444. Uh, You can follow me there, reach out. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, friends. Thanks for joining me.